Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale May 5th, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, happy May the 4th yes. to you. May 5th is my wife's birthday, so happy birthday, Elizabeth. Hey, happy birthday. And uh, May 4th is Star Wars Day celebration fun time. Yeah. So yeah. that's pretty cool. How have you been celebrating the lead up to May the 4th? Do you watch every Star Wars? <laughs> you know, it's been a little while since I've done that all straight in a row. So I probably am due for a mega rewatch. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I got a, a Bo-Katan figure from The Mandalorian. I got it from our pals at Hasbro. And I was like, Elizabeth, do you want this? And she was like, her eyes lit up. She was like, yes. And now it's on the bookshelf <laughs> in her office because she's the biggest Star Wars fan. And those Hasbro awesome. Black Series figures are terrific. Those oh, are that's so, so cool. Yeah. That's great. Uh, we're not here to talk about action figures or just Star Wars, though we will be talking about plenty of yes. Star Wars later in the show. First things first, we're going to get into our new comics on sale this week. We're going to tell you about every single new Marvel comic out there. We have three big picks. Those are our personal faves. Then we are going to uh, throw out some awards to all the other books that are out. We'll run through all the new trades that are out, uh, or at least pick out some of our favorites, and then tell you some fun stuff that's happening on Marvel Unlimited. And at that point, we are getting into our interview. And our guest this week is someone Tucker is very, very excited to talk to, Phil Shostak from Lucasfilm. He'll tell you all about Phil later on. All right, Tucker, can you think of a good Star Wars-themed pulley-esque award for this week for us? Sullust. Okay, so Sullust is a planet in the Star Wars universe. A very cool planet. It has, like, lava and stuff on it. So it's like Sullust, Pullist, Sullust. Yeah. I mean, you're the Star Wars expert. <laughs> I was going to go something a little bit like uh, our Utinis of the week, which you know, sound like a Jawa Utini. I love that. Or uh, our Salacious Crumbs, because Salacious Crumb is one of the greatest the, characters. The dude. Legend. But we'll go with Sullis. <laughs> Remember, I gave you the opportunity and you went as full, nerdy, hardcore Star Wars <laughs> as you possibly could have. We are at the mercy of Tucker, Chet, Marcus here. So let's dive into our picks this week. We got a big number one here. It is Heroes Reborn number one. It's written by Jason Aaron, art by Ed McGinnis, inks by Mark Morales, colors by Matthew Wilson, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Whew. So if you have been reading the Avengers series that Jason has been writing for the last four years, somewhere around there, um, that he launched with Ed McGinnis and Ed has been involved pretty heavily throughout, you know, this is a, a long time coming. We have seen the introduction of the uh, Squadron Supreme of America throughout the pages of Avengers, and they are front and center in this book. Heroes Reborn is a natural extension of the Avengers books that we've been putting out, but if you have not been reading them, you can jump right in. This is a classic world gone wrong in the vein of House of M, in the vein of Age of Apocalypse, in the vein of many what-ifs and alternate realities that we've seen, but a little bit more close to Age of Apocalypse and House of M because there's one character in this story that knows what reality should be. At least one character. If you read the book, you'll see maybe there's more. But one character who definitely does is Blade. I love that Blade is at the center of this. 
it's rad. But the idea here is there's no Avengers. Captain America was not freed from the ice back in the day. And the heroes that rose up were the uh, Squadron Supreme of America. And this is the world that has spun out because of those events. So there's a lot of similarities, many more differences to our reality. There's versions of Marvel heroes and villains that you know. There's references to Jennifer Walters, and we see Thor show up in here. We get to see new villains, my favorite of which, Dr. Juggernaut, which is Dr. Doom with the Crimson Gem of Sitarak, turning him into Juggernaut. He's got Doom written on his knuckles. It's rad. This is awesome. It's a big, really cool series. Phil Coulson has a major role in this. Lots to do, lots to see. I, I suggest... Everybody who listens to the show should just pick up this first issue. See if it fits for you, because I think it's really, really neat. And it's great to just jump into whether or not you're reading Avengers. Totally agreed. And now we are jumping over to a different universe. For Star Wars, War of the Bounty Hunters Alpha, number one. And it's written by Charles Soule, with art by Steve McNiven, colors by Laura Martin, with letters by VCs Travis Lanham. All right, just to start, that creative team is just unbelievable. I'm a huge, longtime fan of Charles. He has brought some amazing stories to some of Marvel and Star Wars's AAA titles, one of the best out there. Then you go over to Laura Martin, one of the best in the business, an incredible colorist who is coloring the work of Steve McNiven. So that just speaks to how special and how great an event this is, how great an issue this is, because we pulled Steve McNiven into the project. I mean, it's just incredible. It's so much fun. And look, I think the credits speak for themselves when we get going here. So what do we have here? We have Han Solo, Frozen Carbonite in Slave One and Boba Fett is carting him off to Jabba in the aftermath of the events of Empire Strikes Back, just like all of our recent Star Wars comics have been. We get a great cold open in this issue, which I'm always a fan of. And then we are off to a kind of classic Star Wars adventure alongside Boba as he attempts to take his bounty to Jabba and, you know, things go wrong and he has to deal with the circumstances just like any good bounty hunter has to do. This is one of those that I don't want to spoil too much. This is such an exciting event, such an exciting project across all Star Wars titles. And look, when we talk about the War of the Bounty Hunters, what are they warring over? They're warring over Han Solo. He is the one whose head is in the crosshairs. There's just a million different exciting things about this. Right up there at the top is the fact that we are treated to some Steve McNiven art in here. And then as we continue on, Luke Ross, who I know he's one of those artists that I've named on the show before as saying, guys, look out for this Luke Ross fella. So I'm so excited to continue this story. Like I said, we have War of the Bounty Hunters Alpha here. Then we're jumping into number one in early June, and we are just off to the races. You get your checklist in here of books that you need to check out. All of it is so spectacular an obvious pick of the week. It's so, so fun. It's so good. Yeah. Holy crap, Steve McNiven. <laughs> I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of Steve's. Mm. There's panels and stuff in here where I was like, 
just aghast at how beautiful and detailed and extravagant this book is. Look, if you're if you're not even a Star Wars fan, go read this book. There's just something to it that is so beautiful and cool to look at. All right, let's keep on going. Uh, the third of our three picks for this week is Marauders number 20, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Edgar Delgado and Chris Sotomayor, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. I feel like next month is just going to be Hellfire Gala over and over again in our picks. The Hellfire Gala is a thing that we know is coming, and there's been little bits and pieces and discussions, and it's been building and building and building. And this issue is basically on the eve of the gala, and we are following our Marauders team on their way to the island where the gala will take place. And the team is... Kate Pride and Iceman and Emma Frost and Bishop and Pyro and, and Callisto and everybody. But it's mostly because this is a book focused on Storm. Storm has said, after the gala, I'm finished with the Marauder part of my time with Krakoa. I have something else I want to do. I need something bigger. And we've seen this sort of coming in the last couple of months. She's talked about it. It's been coming up. She almost died, you know, and got really sick for a while. But Storm here is basically going to embark on a new venture after the gala. Look, she's one of the greatest characters in Marvel, in my opinion. So, yeah, everything that is coming for her is earned and awesome and perfect. So this is a lot about Storm, and it's the characters basically talking, telling stories about her, reminiscing, celebrating, they're drinking. There's this whole sequence about how she doesn't even have to use her superpowers to just throw down and destroy someone. Uh, at one point, there's a, like a knife. At one point, she doesn't even use violence. She's just basically able to convince people the threat of her is enough to stop people. It's she's Storm. This is look if you like Storm and you've never read a Marauders book, this is a perfect book for you to jump into and then be like, oh, I should read the previous 19 issues of Marauders because this is one of the best comics that Marvel's putting out. It's great. Stefano Caselli, his action is amazing. His character designs are really good. But I was like looking at this couple of panels with Pyro and Storm. And there's this one shot of Pyro with his arms behind his back and he's like smirking. And I'm just, there's so much to that one panel and the way he moves, you feel everything he's feeling in that moment. Even if you didn't have Jerry's great dialogue to go with it, it's a great comic book. I am so excited for Hellfire Gala. You have no idea. Yeah, so much to love. And now, finally, we have sort of both teased it and like avoided talking about it on the show before. But Jerry, coming to X-Men number one. Yes. How exciting is that? Alongside Pepe. Oh, my God. If you had told me that Jonathan was going to leave the X-Men, I would have been like, well, crap. What does that mean? <laughs> and then you tell me that Jerry is taking over. I'm like, great. It's in perfect hands. I know it's <laughs> going to be as good or better than ever before. Totally. All right. That's what we have for our picks this week. And now moving over to our soulists, our Ooteenies, our fantastic floppies that are hitting shelves this week. And we're kicking it off with Amazing Spider-Man number 65. My Celest for this one, my Utini goes straight to Federico Vicentini and Federico Sabatini, who I think just pull off this art so beautifully. This is a really, really kinetic, fast-paced, wild issue. We have panels crashing together. We have chaos 
abound. There's a lot happening in Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, I'm a big fan of where we've ended up. I'm a big fan of J. Jonah. I'm a big fan of Kingpin in the best, worst way. Uh, a bunch to enjoy right now in ASM. Yeah. All right. We have America Chavez made in the USA number three out this week. There's a lot to love in this issue. There's a lot of revelations and big things that are explained and discussed and put forward in this issue. We'll see how it all shakes out as the remainder of the series comes. I will not spoil any of it. I want to give my solace Dutini to Carlos Gomez, the artist in here. I particularly love Carlos's costuming. When you have a, an artist who can make your characters look awesome and it fits who they are and what they are all about, then you have great flow to it, especially when they're in action like America and there's another character in here. Their outfits just look awesome. On top of that, there's some really great set building in here. I think Carlos is showing here that he can do a lot of everything and do it really, really well. Totally. All right. Next up. We have Carnage, Black, White, and Blood, number three. And like each of these Black, White, and Blood issues, this is comprised of a few different stories. The first one's called No Survivors, and that's brought to you by Dan Slott and Greg Smallwood. Boom, immediately, you know my eye is being drawn there. Mr. Smallwood, what an incredible talent. And as we know, you know, these Black, White, and Blood stories... They're really meant as platforms for artists. They're meant to really showcase some of the best in the entire business. Obviously, that's what we get with Greg Smallwood. Then next up, we have Sea of Blood. That is written by friend of the show, Carlo Pacheco, with Chris Monium on art and Mattia Yacono. Love that one so much. Really cool. High seas story. Awesome. And then I'm taking a sip of a Solustatini. Um, which is where this is evolving now. Um, I think it goes to writer Alyssa Wong, who brings us the third story in here alongside penciler Gerardo Sandoval. I really, really think Alyssa Wong is something special. We knew this because of how incredible Dr. Afra has been. We knew this. But what I'm saying is even kind of beyond that, because there's just a vision there. There is something that is a little bit transcendent and I'm just a mega, mega fan. So excited to keep reading these Black, White, and Blood issues. And it just makes me excited to go back and dive into Dr. Aphra. Um, speaking of Star Wars this week. But yeah, really great stuff. Heck yeah. All right. We've got Hellions number 11. There's a lot of weird, dark stuff in this book. But Arcade has imprisoned the Hellions team and is using Mastermind to make them believe things that aren't real. I think my Sullust Utini of the week is going to writer Zeb Wells for putting this weird thread together, but also, most importantly, sticking with his gimmick for Sinister in that Sinister got most of his teeth knocked out in the last issue, and he's, like, all his dialogue is as though he's gotten all his teeth knocked out, and, like, phonetically, it's funny and kind of unsettling in my stomach to, to read his dialogue in here. This book is wild. It's very dark. It's very funny at times, but it's also like there's this underlying sense of dread and menace that lives at the core of this. And also like you're shaking up a bottle of something fizzy. You're shaking it furiously. And that bottle is Psylocke. And sometime soon, that's going to open. That top is going to pop and something intense is going to happen. And I want to see, I can't wait to see how Psylocke just explodes and destroys something. 
<laughs> Next up, we are jumping over to Immortal Hulk number 46. <sighs> Folks, big, big spoilers this issue that I won't talk about this time. We'll talk about it when 47 comes out. <laughs> but we have never seen something like this in Immortal Hulk in 46 issues. We've never seen anything like what happens in here. I was so excited when I saw what was unfurling in this issue. There is a double page spread in here that will knock your socks off. Joe Bennett just doing backflips on the page. Unbelievable. This is like a slow burn one. This is a slow burn, oh my God moment, Celeste Utini of the week because there are like five different page turns in this issue where I went, oh my, what? Now this? There is just so much to love in here. Gimme, gimme, gimme the next one. Hell yeah. Speaking of next ones, we've got Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon, number five up next. Man, I love this book so much. We've talked about it before. It is basically like a big Marvel Universe action, mystic martial arts, big throwdown event with dragons. And in the last issue, we saw that Okoye from Wakanda has gotten involved in a major way. Let's just say she is holding the heart of a dragon. And sometimes in the Marvel Universe, with that comes some wild powers. So that's where we're at with her. And it's really rad. Uh, I want to give my solist Utini to David Wachter, the artist in here, who we've recently announced will be doing an Aliens book with Mr. Benjamin Percy. I am so <laughs> hyped for that. This book is, of course, written by Larry Hama. And so it's great. But David, man, he's channeling parts of David Aha and Michael Walsh in some ways. And uh, I want to give a shout out to Niraj Manan, the, the colorist. There's like a watercolory kind of vibe to some of this, but it is an amazingly beautiful book that is just about destruction and death and trying to stave off the end of everything with incredibly powerful, evil, maniacal beasts and zombies and Iron Fist and Luke Cage and Okoye and some other amazing characters in here. It's big, action-packed, and it's awesome. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right, next up we have Strange Academy, number 10. I have a twofold Celestutini for this one. The first one goes out to Volstag. I love him so much. Love his mustache. I love his beard. Love everything about him. And we go on a field trip with the kids to Asgard, where we meet up with him. So much fun. So we have that. And folks, do not forget... The fact that we're being treated to monthly titles from an all-timer, from a legend here with Strange Academy, with Humberto Ramos. His standard of work is so unmatched, um, but right alongside him with Edgar Delgado on colors, uh, I just felt the need to take a step back and go, oh yeah, we do have one of the all-time greats bringing us new stories on the monthly here. This is a really, really fun issue and just a, a great reminder of how dang lucky we are. Amen. All right. We've got Thor and Loki Double Trouble number three out this week. As you can see by the cover, we've got a couple of Thors in here and you'll see in the cover for the next issue, there's a couple of Lokis and this is just a great way for this creative team to make a really fun book. It is just absolutely fun in this, the two Thors arm wrestle. Thor, Thor, and Loki do this like video game fighting or like side scroll and beat em up team up move where the, all three of them do a jumping downward kick together at the same time. It's I read this and I was like, Gudahiru, they are one of my favorite artist teams going today. It's so fun. 
Thor and Loki Double Trouble puts a smile on my face every issue. I totally, wholeheartedly agree. All right, I'm wrapping it up. On my side of the table here with The Union, number five, my Celestatini has to go to artist Andrea DeVito. There's some beautiful stuff happening here. I love some of the sort of noir angles that we get in here. It's a different type of Marvel comic in that way. There are some really horrific moments at the same time in here. Really, really unique stuff. My favorite of these five issues, which has been just overall a great trip. A really, really fun time. Heck yeah. All right. Our last book of the week is X-Men Curse of the Man-Thing number one, wrapping up the big Curse of the Man-Thing arc. This is parts seven, eight, and nine of the story. And in here, it is obviously a big X-Men focused issue, but Man-Thing is still sort of like out of control and rampaging. So on one side, you still have the Avengers and Spider-Man involved. But on the other side, we get to see magic get involved, aka the um, Ileana Rasputin from Krakoa. And she enlists a team of mutants to join her in this. And that gets my Solist Utini of the week for this book of awesome appearances by characters more people should love. In here, you've got Forearm, who is a big, (laughs) beefy boy with, you guessed it, Four Arms. He was a member of Strife's Mutant Liberation Front in the 90s. Mamomax, who's a giant elephant boy. I love him. <laughs> Marrow and Shark Girl. It's like tremendous. For nothing else, just come for them. But also you get to see like a good wrap up and sort of putting Man-Thing in a more secure place in the Marvel Universe. Totally. All right. That's what we have for new Marvel mags coming to you this week. And now jumping over to Collections. Immediately, my eye is drawn to All-New Wolverine by Tom Taylor. We have Dead Man Logan, the complete collection. That's a series I loved. Really, really great. We also have Ms. Marvel by Saladin Ahmed, Volume 3, Outlawed. So go pick those up at your local comic shop. All right, let's talk a little bit about Marvel Unlimited because this week uh, we've got a bunch of issues hitting the service. Some really great stuff in the Krakoan realm, New Mutants, Wolverine, X-Men, of course, Daredevil number 26 and Deadpool number 10, uh, ones I want to point out. Those are King and Black tie-ins. Those are great comics. And of course, we want to make sure y'all know what Marvel Unlimited is. With Marvel Unlimited, you can dive into over 40 years of all kinds of comics, including Star Wars comics, all available now on Marvel Unlimited. Use code MUSAVE60 to get one year of Marvel Unlimited for just $60. That is a code MUSAVE60. Automatic renewal and other terms apply. And of course, go to marvel.com slash May the 4th to unlock that deal with code MUSAVE60. Um, all right. So we're, of course, talking a little bit about Star Wars there in our Marvel Unlimited section. But Tucker, who's our guest this week? Our guest this week is someone I'm a massive fan of. It's Phil Shostak. He is the creative art manager at Lucasfilm, works very closely with the concept art department over there. And then he's also the author of The Art of Star Wars books. So The Art of The Force Awakens, The Art of The Last Jedi, The Art of Solo, A Star Wars Story, The Art of The Rise of Skywalker, The Art of The Mandalorian. These are books that I obsessively collect and read So well-written, so well-done. So we are talking this week with Phil about Darth Vader, Dark Lord of the Sith, Fortress Vader. So a ton to dig into with Mr. Phil Shostak. 
Tucker, I know this is going to be a tough one for you to really dig deep into Star Wars talk, but today our guest on the show is Phil Shostak. Phil, how's it going? Great. Happy to be here. Happy to talk comics, you know, which is not something I get to do very often. Phil, just to kick us off for listeners, could you give a quick explainer of what you do over at Lucasfilm? Well, my title is creative art manager, but that doesn't really tell you a whole lot about what I actually do. (laughs) And what I do is really complicated because I'm kind of all over the company. I interface a lot with publishing, obviously, with the books I do, but then also uh, definitely have my hands in reviewing interiors of comics, comics covers, and other publishing covers every week. But I guess you could say the main part of my job is to interface with our productions and send them any reference that they need. So, for example, at the end of credits of The Mandalorian, you'll see my name every week, which is amazing. And I'm credited as a researcher. So the prop master will contact me and be like, you know, we need reference of blah, 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 blaster or whatever. And I'll dig into our archive and send that stuff to them as quickly as possible. And I also do the same function within the art department. So if an artist in the art department needs some reference or has a question about lore or any of that kind of stuff, I help them with that. So, yeah, it's kind of multifaceted and all over the place but mostly dealing with concept art. But then also I'm one of the, the gang of folks who reviews everything for publishing, you know, which includes, of course, the story group, who I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Yeah. Very cool. We're going to get into a lot more of your gig because that just sounds real fun. But we are here with our reading club to talk about Darth Vader, Dark Lord of the Sith, and the Fortress Vader storyline, which is issues 19 through 25 of the run. Phil, something that we'd love to see if you could do in 30 seconds or so, (laughs) can you give a summary of this storyline in three, two, go. All right. This is, this run is the literal creation of Darth Vader's castle that we see in Rogue One. So uh, even though it's from, I think, late 2018, which came after Rogue One, we get to see how that castle came to be why you know Vader chose Mustafar to build that castle and what its original purpose was for, as opposed to, you know, it's not just a home for Vader. It serves a greater purpose in the in the narrative of this arc. <laughs> oh, in under the wire. Nice. I like it. <laughs> that was a bit crazy, but that was great. Yeah, thank you. Phil, were you working on this series as it was coming out? Yeah, um, it took a while for my name to get in individual issues, but. It is now, and but at the time it wasn't. But I definitely was reviewing these interiors, and Matt Martin was the one who pinged me for a very specific task mm. as pertains to this run, which is the earlier designs for Vader's castle, which in these issues he has destroyed, and then we see the final version eventually. So yeah, I definitely was working on these, and, and it was a super fun way to wrap up the series. The series is so good. I- yeah. Man, I forgot how much I loved this. I I mean, I've loved every Vader book that we've done. I think they all have a little bit of a different tone and have different feeling. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes you have Vader that is just the monster walking through walls to go after his prey, like just terrifying monster. Something like this gets more psychological and still it's terrifying, but Mm -hmm. digging deep into the emotional parts of who Vader is is really good. Uh, This storyline written by Charles Soule, pencils by Giuseppe Camancoli, finishes by Danielle Orlandini, and colors by David Curiel with letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Being the art guy and reviewing all this, I am jealous of the opportunity for you to see Camo's art. Camo, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, is is the nickname that Giuseppe Camancoli has garnered over the years. Camo's a a friend. And I think 
of all of Camo's work that I've read over the years, I think this might be my favorite. I think he refines his lines so much by the end of this. And there's so much detail and emotion and the feeling of action and kineticism that is exuded through every single panel, even the ones where it's characters who are just standing there and they're looking terrified because Vader is just like not done anything. And that's terrifying in and of itself. There's so much going on here. How much fun was it for you to get Camo's pages in? Uh, That's amazing. Yeah, I don't join the review process until the art phase, of course, which makes sense. But yeah, oh my God, just this whole run was so amazing. This whole comic and Camicoli's pencils are awesome. It's a privilege. I'm seeing this stuff, you know, often months before it's released. And I'm seeing it at the very, you know, in each phase from pencils to inks to colors. So yeah, it was amazing. Phil, there are like a hundred reasons that I wanted to get you on the show so badly. One of them, though, was that I follow you on Twitter and I could tell that you're a comic book guy going back for a very long time, it seems. So that always really excites me. And in particular, it excites me in getting a vague picture of your story as a creative person, as a professional. I'm so curious, especially because your job description is so unique. I'm curious how you ended up there in terms of being led by a passion for what you do or being led by a passion for Star Wars, being led by a passion for any particular subject um, that led you to where you are today. So I'm just curious in general to hear your story um, to, you know, where you can end up working on a book like Darth Vader. Yeah. uh, Well, it's a long story. (laughs) I mean, I guess my first passion of all the passions that kind of led me to Lucasfilm was Star Wars itself because, you know, I saw the original trilogy in theaters. I just happened to be a kid at that time and everyone was seeing it. So, I mean, that was that. And then eventually I kind of worked my way into comics. And I've mentioned this recently on Twitter, actually, was the first comics I regularly collected were the Further Adventures of Indiana Jones and Star Wars. And I got them individually as issues wrapped in brown paper sent to me, you know, by Marvel every month. We collected those back in, what was that, like 84 maybe? And then got more into comics as the 80s kind of marched on. At the same time, though, I was really getting into animation as well. So that's kind of what I ended up going to art school for was animation. And all those passions, for sure, led me to San Francisco, knowing that Lucasfilm was here and knowing that Pixar was here, the Bay Area. Yeah, got a job here in the industry. What was the job? Did you go right into Lucas? Uh, No, I did not. Um, I worked for a while at an independent animation studio here in San Francisco called Wild Brain on a uh, Disney channel preschool kids animated show called Higglytown Heroes. Oh, just like this Darth Vader storyline. They're very similar. (laughs) Precisely, yeah. (laughs) One obviously leads to the next. Um, That was great, though. I mean, it was really a a huge education. And that's what led me to the Lucasfilm and uh, started then working up at the ranch with George. Mm. What was that, 13 years ago now? All right. So you say working up at the ranch with George. How closely (laughs) is that like working with George, has that been over the course of your 13 years? For the first four years or so, I was uh, running the art department up at Skywalker Ranch in the main house, which is the same art department that, you know, worked on the prequels. So there was a gap of time after the prequels when there wasn't much going on. But yeah, that was amazing. So I was, yeah, meeting with George every week. An amazing way to kick off my career at Lucasfilm, obviously, working with the man himself. Yeah. (laughs) And this leads me to my 100 reasons in so many different ways, because, I mean, there's been so much spoken about in terms of the visual language of Star Wars, in terms of 
what an education, if you are you know, lucky enough to work in the art department at Lucasfilm, what an education that can be in terms of visual language, in terms of that thing where you say you need to know in three seconds yeah. who you're with, where you are, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah. Could you quantify what you learned in those early days? Is that even possible? No. <laughs> I wish. I mean, it's, I, I think the best person who's kind of been able to kind of quantify it has been my boss, Doug Chang. And Doug is obviously, you know, for those Star Wars fans listening, he's a, kind of a legendary concept artist and the head of design now for Lucasfilm. And he quantifies it as, as like you were saying, like the three second rule and that Star Wars is historical. It's not futuristic and, and various little, and he had a presentation actually is what I'm referring to at Celebration in Chicago, I believe, which is on YouTube, which, you know, everyone can watch where he talked about kind of the Star Wars aesthetic, like what defines it. Yeah, I, I think I just internalized a lot of that from all those meetings with George without really being able to consciously define it. It's something I just kind of grew with me instinctively. But now that Doug has really helped <laughs> to define it a little more clearly and, and that all the people I've interviewed for my books over the years, I think it's something I can kind of speak to a little bit more now consciously. But you just start to get it after a while. After you start hearing the kind of similar notes over and over again from George, you start to understand kind of what he's looking for. And it's something pretty specific. And I don't even know if he could necessarily say exactly what it is, but it's just the George aesthetic, you know, just what resonates for him. Um, You have mentioned a story group and you mentioned Matt Martin, a friend of ours. I want to sort of visualize it for our listeners who maybe aren't as well-versed in Star Wars, or maybe some are, but the, the Marvel way that I think about it sort of the the story group and maybe your art department is like one is shield, one is sword. You're both <laughs> protecting and developing and moving forward, but there's different sort of ways that you go about it. And the work's very simpatico, but also have very different missions in mind. How does that sort of day-to-day relationship with uh, the story group sort of pan out for you? There's a bit of crossover, but generally like I'm more of like a visuals art design guy and the story group, even though they do give notes on those aspects of things as well and have opinions on those things as well, they're mostly focused on story and continuity. And they're usually earlier on in projects than I am. They're looking at in the world of comics, the scripts, uh, which is a phase that I'm not generally a part of. So yeah, I work closely with those guys and, and know them super well. And I've especially known Pablo and Leland since the beginning of my career 13 years ago. It's great to kind of work with those guys closely and yeah, it's a very organic process and just something we've been doing now for this, I mean, reviewing comics. I've been doing it, I guess, at least for at least for three or four years. So it's just a part of our daily existence <laughs> at Lucasfilm. Now, looking at Darth Vader for listeners, if you're looking on Marvel Unlimited, it's the 2017 series. Aside from the fact that it's brilliant and this amazing culmination of a great run, What in particular, Phil, made you want to talk about these issues? Well, this was the run that made me really fall in love with Charles Soule as a writer. Mm -hmm. Like I was just consistently blown away by like the risks he was taking as a writer and just how great it was and how wild it was. Like I felt like he was just really going for it with this run and just an opportunity to revisit it because it had been such a long time since I'd read these issues. And there were aspects of this particular Fortress Vader run that I had forgotten it just felt so bold and that Charles was just really taking so many chances as a writer and given that opportunity by Lucasfilm to really go for it and help to define 
who Vader was immediately after the events of episode three. And I, I think especially it culminates so beautifully in Fortress Vader, the whole series. Yeah, bold choices like Vader force cradling a small naked baby, <laughs> this cute little baby that he's like holding and just carrying around with the force yeah. after he silenced it. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that opening is so dark. Like that's something I, I in my notes, <laughs> I was like, wow, this comic is dark. Like it's got some kind of dark imagery and dark storyline. You know, I think it was kind of pushed as much as it could be pushed, but appropriately so. I mean, Darth Vader's story is tragic and dark and violent. Charles just really captured not only Vader's voice, but it just felt like a really natural extension of Vader's story following Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. I also love the emperor in here who's like yeah. a priest this is why they lost they're such fools and he's like dunking on on the jedi that they've been hunting down even at this point he's just such a he's a fiend i love yeah. it uh, another thing i really loved is seeing the inquisitors in this yeah. and those designs are just stellar yeah uh, the inquisitors are fascinating and it is like a bridge to the previous run i believe Inquisitor story kind of wraps up in this run, and then we move on to the moment and castle of it all. But yeah, the, the Inquisitors are always fun and great to get to know them better through these issues as well. Yeah, no, that's a really cool aspect of this comic in general. One of my favorite things that's heavily explored in this series, both story-wise and visually, independent of each other, is the sort of force plane that mm. Vader sort of ascends to when he's meditating. He just sort of sees himself hovering over this black ocean with lightning striking in the distance and sort of these red skies that are swirling. It's amazing. And it's particularly cool because it's almost a little bit abstract, especially in comparison to the really clean lines that Chemicoli is bringing to the other. Like if you flip the page right before and after, you have these beautiful clean lines and you open it up and it's almost a little bit impressionistic yeah like a painting i was gonna say yeah uh, <laughs> visually it's just obviously gorgeous and also it gives you an insight into how vader perceives himself we gonna get inside his head in a way that we don't normally like he's got big walls up <laughs> vader as a character like he doesn't say much i mean often he reacts to things with violence but you don't really get a sense of his anger then the mask kind of hides his emotional state how he feels about what's happening and how he feels about who he's become I feel like that journey into that spiritual plane when he's meditating and gives you insights into how he perceives himself. It's so, so interesting. And I think, you know, really pulls you into the energy, the story, the tone of what's happening there, the darkness that's at the core of this character. That's certainly one of the things that comes to mind for me. Another one is any time that there's actually a slightly antagonistic relationship between Vader and the Emperor is something that I really love. Um, it's because I think it's not something you would automatically assume might happen. All oh, these guys are on the same team. I totally agree. And I feel like that's just a Sith thing where they're kind of always testing each other. And there's the assumption among the Sith, you know, with the rule of two, that eventually the apprentice will take out the master and take his own apprentice and then the cycle will continue. And I guess the master's always trying to keep the apprentice in check so that doesn't happen so the master can live for as long as they do and all that stuff. And that whole dynamic between the Sith is fascinating and really at play. And there's a lot of, the emperor knows a lot about 
obviously he's known Anakin since he was a boy and he's got a lot of kind of like dirt on Anakin. You can kind of <laughs> manipulate him emotionally and control him. And that's a, in full play in, in these issues. And you always feel the Emperor's testing Vader and kind of pushing his buttons. The one thing that really jumped out for me, the minute you see Padme's shit and the Emperor's framing it, like, I'm giving you this gift. It's Padme's ship. And you're just like, dude, that's so messed up. Like, <laughs> Palpatine, man, that's rough. And I just thought that was such a great idea by Charles, you know, to introduce that element into this. And I also love how Vader, when he's descending to Mustafar in it, just lets it burn. Yeah. I love that the last issue is mostly in like this mental scape. And he's mm-hmm. sort of going through all these moments in his life. It, it feels like such a great culmination of this storyline, sort of the Vader tales that we've we've been building to and, and sort of his emotional journey into creating this fortress that really is an extension of him and him finding a sense of like connection there, which is really cool. Like the, just the, those moments where he's reliving things and fighting and going back and forth. And, and there's a shot of him in that mental version where he's got his lightsabers out and he's leaping. And it's like, holy moly, that is <laughs> rad as hell. It's a really good story. I think what Maybe it was after the run, or maybe I'm just misremembering, but I love that it goes from no, which is his first words at the end of episode three, obviously, mm-hmm. and and the first words in this in this comic, you know, him realizing what's happened. And at the end of this, he says, yes, you know, he goes from no to yes. And I think it's him fully embracing his new life as Darth Vader. You know, obviously, I think it bears out as you go through the, the original trilogy that there's still a part of his humanity that's never let go of. Padme and what his life could have been and the tragedy of who he is as Darth Vader. But he definitely is more accepting and embracing of it by the end of this run. And I think that's really typified by that no TS journey that he goes through. There are so many, so many striking visuals in this, like the flesh Vader mask on boy Anakin. Oh Oh my God. (laughs) Absolutely terrifying to go back. Speaking of these visuals, to go back again, to dive back into the the show stack history here, something that, you know, speaking of Matt Martin as well, something that I remember when we had him on the show, when he was talking about the visual language of Star Wars and really digesting what that means and just Star Wars in general, Star Wars storytelling. Matt said that to really understand Star Wars, you don't study Star Wars, you study what influenced Star Wars. You studied the things that impacted the very creation of Star Wars itself. So I'm curious from your perspective, like what some of your favorite classic, whether it's samurai films, World War II films, et cetera, influences of Star Wars, you know, what some of your favorites are there. And then to go to comic book specific, like what you loved growing up, what you were reading growing up. Yeah, as far as film influences on Star Wars, I was the kind of nerdy high schooler that was watching Kurosawa movies <laughs> as a teenager. And those are my you know, one of my great loves. War and Western films, which are also huge influences on Star Wars, were not film genres that I was particularly into or interested in for whatever reason. I think the aesthetic of them, I was just kind of afraid of them. I was like, oh, war, no. <laughs> like, you know, just that historical aesthetic, I guess, was not something I was into. But of course, now I'm like super into. And But comics-wise, when I was collecting comics, I mean, it was like the era of Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, and I was getting those issues as they were coming out month by month. 
you know, this is an amazing time to be collecting comics. And I completely agree with what Matt said that I think it's just generally as an artist important to dig deep and not just understand the thing that you love, but understand what made the thing you love and what in inspired it. And that's what's so amazing about Star Wars and what George did. He just took everything that he loved and put it in a blender and it somehow came out amazing. <laughs> it's not just collage and it's not just a blending. I mean, it's also something completely fresh and new at the same time. And something that resonates so deeply with an entire generation of, you know, multiple generations now of fans and is so deeply meaningful to our fans. You know, you were talking about George and, and sort of pulling all these different things together. We talk about a lot of the fandom similarities between Marvel and Star Wars. Uh, it's generational. It's really interesting to me thinking about how, yeah, George started it and there were some other people around. And yeah, on our side, it's like Stan and Jack and Steve and a couple of other people. But it's really, it then goes into the hands of so many others. And what's cool to me is that these are evolving narratives and they are, if we're lucky, ongoing and they'll shift and change and they grow new branches and, and they, they go backwards and forwards and sideways and all kinds of really cool ways and affect people in so many ways. Like you said, it's it's really, really neat. And um, I'm just glad that like we have these things and they do connect with people. Like my wife is a huge Star Wars fan, like similar to Tucker. Um, and I know our little girl is going to be all over Star Wars when the time comes. It's real cool, man. Speaking of those narratives that you're talking about, Ryan, Phil, I mean, we spent a lot of time here talking about your work in the art department, things like that. I also really want to talk about your work as an author, your work on the art of books, which I am a huge fan of. I'm curious if your work there, if you see overlap and you see cross-pollination in terms of narrative building in terms of telling these stories in terms of, I guess, the evolution of an artistic process or character design and the work that you do when it comes to the narrative evolution that comes in a story like this, in terms of, you know, if you're reviewing comics or something like that, what the connection is there for, for you? Yeah, I don't think I would have nearly the understanding that I do about Star Wars design if I didn't do these books. Even working up at the Ranch with George, I, you know, I learned a ton there, obviously, and, you know, getting to work directly with George, the creator of all this, you know, is such a massive education. But furthering that education through speaking directly to the designers and understanding their mindsets, like, and just, you know, really getting in deep with the artists and getting to know them as people, especially within the art department itself, the artists that are part of our team, who I consider all, you know, good friends, and then getting to talk to them for these books and really starting to like take out their brains. And I feel like, like my understanding of, of the world of concept art and, and just what it, the artistic process and what fundamentally a Star Wars design is, I've learned so much from these guys and ladies about not only just the aesthetic, but the process. And that just feeds into my knowledge base and, and I bring that to everything I do at, at Lucasfilm and, and especially, but I mean, uh, my own background and not only being a fan of comics, but I also self-published my own comic, which I don't know if I want to get into too much because it, it wasn't very good. <laughs> and my education in art school, not only kind of in narrative art, and but animation and just the fundamentals of art, I bring all of that into everything I do at, at Lucasfilm and especially giving review notes on these comics interiors and comics covers. So all that feeds in. And yeah, like, 
it's all just a continuing education and a deepening of knowledge. And I feel like every year that passes by, I'm growing and I'm, I'm humbled by, you know, all these amazing artists work. It's just incredible to see and incredible to see on a daily basis. I'm looking literally at the equivalent of dailies, but in the world of concept art every day and seeing designs evolve on a day-to-day basis. Every day we're looking at at least 20, 30 pieces of concept art. These guys just work so incredibly fast, multiple pieces a day. And a lot of cool projects, I'm sure. Yeah. Speaking of cool projects and amazing artists, uh, last thing I want to ask you about is one of our picks of the week for this episode, and it is the uh, brand new Star Wars War of the Bounty Hunters Alpha issue, which is written by Charles, who wrote this Darth Vader storyline, but art by Steve McNiven. Man, Steve is just on some other level in this book and (laughs) just the things that he's pulling in and that, that idea of like, all your experiences, all your interests kind of come together when you're telling these stories and how Steve pulls in. You can see the artistic influences that he brings to the table. Yeah, uh, it's just such a pleasure to review stuff like that. And Steve is operating on a whole different level. It's, it's such a pleasure. I mean, everything that we get to look at is, is amazing. And especially just as a fan, getting to look at this stuff very early is so cool. I'm so excited about this crossover event and that Alpha book is such a great way to kick it off. And Steve McNiven's art is just unreal. One of my favorite things in recent Star Wars history is hearing production designer, legendary production designer, Rick Carter, talk about Star Wars. And that guy is like, uh, for listeners, he is like a very legendary figure in production design in the film world. This is a person who doesn't just think in terms of practical purposes, in terms of literal things. He sort of transcended that in this way, where he's so good at that, that it becomes a bigger, more almost spiritual question, at least as it applies to Star Wars. And there is a foreword, I believe, in the Art of the Force Awakens book, right, by Rick Carter. Yeah. In which he poses the question, and this is something that I recently asked Star Wars comics writer uh, Kevin Scott about for his thoughts on it. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts here as well, Phil, as we start to wrap up. Because Rick asks the question, what is the force? What is the force as it applies to our world? What is the force as it applies to the reality that we as human beings on planet Earth live in? And then how do we take that Whatever that answer is, how do we take that, the energy of that, the spirit of that, and apply it to the work that we do? And I just really wanted to hear your thoughts on it in general. Yeah. I mean, as you were talking about Rick, the picture I had in my mind is like him as like a general kind of leading us up the hill, you know, with a sword ray. It's just like <laughs> in those early days, Rick was so important because I was there in, in mid-2013 is kind of when I joined the art department. And it was really intimidating, you know, to imagine like, okay, we're kickstarting a new era of Star Wars films. What is the Star Wars aesthetic? What, what are these films going to look like? What, what do we want to say with them? And Rick was, is always fearless and approaching it from a very deep place. It gave everyone so much confidence to have Rick leading the charge, someone who's been in the trenches on so many projects. It was so important and and. Yeah, I love Rick. Rick is an amazing human being and an amazing production designer. But anyway, what the force is, I mean, I think ultimately that's what's so powerful about Star Wars in that first film, especially that the final moments of the film when Luke is in that trench doing the trench run 
and he turns off the targeting computer and he's all alone. He, Luke is alone. He has no backup, you know? Um, I mean, but backup will come in a second, but like, you know, him just letting go and trusting the force. I think what George was trying to say with star Wars is that like, there's magic in the universe. Magic is real. There's something that connects us all to each other and to the natural world that is spiritual and, and star Wars is inherently spiritual. That's, I think, what makes it resonate so strongly. It's really a powerful message that George is trying to tell us all that we're, you know, as, as Yoda says in Empire, you know, when he's like poking at Luke's shoulder, you know, like this is just temporary stuff, you know, like, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're greater than just our physical beings. We're greater than just our kind of mundane day-to-day -day lives. There's more powerful forces at work in the universe. And that's a, a kind of a beautiful and, and powerful message and you know i thought about this a lot because especially in those days in, in like you know 2012 2013 really thinking like oh man like okay like what is it what is it about star wars what is it like why is it still so resonant why is it still so meaningful to not only to our fans but to me you know what is it and that's kind of the answer i came up with you know like it's it's with george's message and fundamentally is that you know there's more to it than than what we can see with our eyes and there's there's deep spiritual connections between all of us look overall it's such amazing fuel for all the stuff that we're talking about here it's it's such it's just a great reminder in terms of you know we talk about fandom we talk about these bigger things what led each of us to this conversation you know in a bunch of different ways so it, it, it's it's a really really great thing to analyze from a, a like a source of passion, a source of interest, a source of something that just grabs you on the inside. Yeah. We have that on the bigger scale. And then we have what you are looking at with your eyes. Uh, yeah. And in this case, it's Darth Vader 19, <laughs> 25, which are so amazing and both worthy on that primary level, as well as the secondary tertiary, all the way up to the most spiritual questions. It is so great. And it really does capture all of that. That's my attempt to <laughs> put a bow on this big conversation here. Phil, I really, really, really want to thank you so much for joining us, for talking about Star Wars, for talking about comics, for talking about all of it, for dealing with the big questions that I <laughs> couldn't help but ask. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Phil. Tucker's going to be dining on this for a week. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Big thanks to Phil for coming on the show. And big thanks to you, Tucker, for letting me get a word in there. I know you were very <laughs> excited for that whole piece, and rightfully so. Big shout out, of course, always to our listeners, including Karis Pollard, who has a whole big thread of pulleys. You can follow Karis at A, Karis Pollard, A-C-H-A-R-I-S-P-O-L-L-A-R-D, to find out what she is excited about every week when new Marvel comics come out. It's something I always like to check in on and find out what she really digs when she gets her pull list. And if you want to tell us what you're digging from your pull list, you can, of course, email us at pulllist at marvel.com. That's P-U-3-L-S-I-S-T, P-U-L-L-L-I-S-T at marvel.com. Also, there's the hashtag Marvel's Pull List. All right, that's a wrap for us. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. 
And Brad Barton is Marvel's Polis Audio Development Manager. And look, he really wanted to be a bounty hunter in a galaxy far, far away, but he's um he's kind of a kind of a scaredy cat. <laughs> I'm Ryan. <laughs> and I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe. 